listener production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, welcome to MI3's 100th podcast and welcome to Sir Martin Sorrell, who's joining us for the occasion. He's not 100, but he has been around the block a bit. So where do we start? In 2018, Sir Martin exited WPP inside a hurricane after founding the supergroup in the 1980s following his tenure as the finance man for the then untouchable Saatchi brothers at Saatchi and Saatchi. In the past three years, he's been working on his next stage WPP, S4 Capital, which now has a market capitalization of nearly $3 billion, already about one quarter of WPP's value. But S4 is trading on a roughly 25 times forward earnings multiple compared to the single digits that Omnicom, WPP, Publicis and IPG trade on. That means the equity markets are banking on S4 Capital being a long-term growth celebrity in a sector that's been perpetually stretched like pizza dough. No pressure there, Sir Martin. Um, there's too much to cover, but we're going to try and traverse what happened to Sir Martin's grand joint venture experiment with WPP AUNZ, one of the few in the world, I think, of its kind for the company. That's just been buried. To the prospects of further global holding company mergers and breakups. Scuttlebutt has it S4 might even like Group M in any WPP breakup. And we might also get to why S4's digital media, content, and data proposition is powering for the moment at least. And hopefully, what the new wave of regulation and privacy means for marketing. S4's share price was hit by investor concerns on this front, but has since recovered quite nicely. Whatever happens, I'm sure we're in for a pithy quip or two, certainly after the results of S4 last year for 2020 and the first quarter results this year, some big growth numbers. Uh, so enough from me. Welcome, Sir Martin. Welcome, Paul. Thank you very much. You're going to cause trouble as usual. One slight correction, our market cap is £3 billion or... $4 billion. I should have said circa £3 billion. You're right. Good technical correction there, Sir Martin. So let's start with this Australian shooting star, shall we? Because this was your baby. Probably with the exception of perhaps Omnicom's BBDO and Cleminger, you were probably, and still are probably, the only global holding company boss who, who understood the possibly feral but definitely parochial nature of the Australian market. As an outside observer now to the buried STW WPP listed venture, where did it all go wrong? What's your view from the outside? I know you're not inside anymore, but you most certainly will have some observations. It's probably all about, uh, Paul, to be fair, about leadership. I mean, bringing, bringing somebody from Europe to run the company doesn't make any sense. And, I, and I'm somewhat surprised the Australian press and media, which are usually quite, um, quite vicious uh, <laughs> and quite direct, uh, that they haven't directed their fire more against uh, the chairman, what's his name, Rob? Rob McTeer. Yeah, right. Uh, and Jens Monsi. I think, look, bringing somebody from the outside, Australia, as you, you know, we go back to John Singleton, the larrikins of Russell Tate and John Singleton, it, AUNZ needs local leadership. What's interesting about what's happened is you now have a situation where I think the chairman of the executive committee sits in London, Andrew Scott, who I have a lot of time for. I think it's very able, but you can't possibly chair a group from London, a totally different time zone and totally different location in, in Asia Pacific. And, and of course, what you, you'll have is a, a rudderless company. It, it's quite strange what's happening at WPP, actually, because uh, my view is that 
all the holding companies have to become one company. You, you see it with publicists. They, they, they do mouth off about power of one and then you visit one of their lobbies and they have 26 different brands in the, in the lobby area. Um, but, but I think strategically that's the right direction. Omnicom, of course, doesn't have a strategy. It, it, uh, John Wren is not strategic. He's ha- very good tactically uh, and he has separate brands. Dentsu are trying to build one Dentsu. IPG are trying to build one IPG and probably most successfully because McCann is such a high proportion of the overall business, probably about 60, 70% of the business, I think, even after Axiom. And therefore, they, they can integrate much more effectively. But the net net is that every holding company is trying to become one company, rather like our own unitary structure at S4 Capital. It's one of our four principles, but they're not making it. And I think what uh, what's happened at WPP AUNZ is it's been a step backwards, a mighty step backwards, because now it's become much more splintered. What it needs is local leadership. And the country management model seems to have taken a step back and the verticals seem to have reasserted their power. And I think that leads to greater division within the holding companies. I know horizontality is a banned word at WPP, but um, bringing the company together as one firm, as a McKinsey or a Goldman Sachs, to use some grand examples, is the key necessity and the key the key objective. And I and I think having said that, you know, I, I read some of the material on what's been happening at Cleminger or Omnicommon, that doesn't seem much better at the moment. That might be so all of this may be a function of what's been happening in the traditional media markets. And the digital media market has been strong. You know, we grew last year top line like for like 20%, whilst most of the holding companies, well, all of them were floundering down about five or ten percent. You know, we grew in the first quarter of this year, as you sort of highlighted, by about 35% on the top line, and net revenues were up by 33%. And we've guided the market to 30% this year, and I've said I'd be very disappointed if we didn't do better than that. We will do better than that, I think. So the digital markets have been extremely strong, and of course the Australian market is going digital with increasing intensity, as we've seen with the, the actions of the ACCC and the reaction of traditional media to the growth of Google and Facebook, for example, in the market. But traditional remains under pressure. And we're going to have to wait, I think, until probably 2023 to see what's been really happening in the traditional media markets. Because 21 and 22, I'm extremely bullish on globally. Worldwide GDP is going to be up this year by... 5 to 6% next year, 4 to 5% on the rebound from the pandemic. So it's a very strong tailwind generally. And then, of course, in our particular case, we have a, a second tailwind. That's the secular growth of digital transformation. So maybe the, the troubles at AUNZ, I think primarily it's about leadership. You can't import somebody into Australia like that. It just doesn't work. Is Australia peculiar like that? Because there's a lot of markets that would consider themselves quite quite individual and unique. No, I think that's a very good point, Paul. I mean, I, if you said to me in terms of degrees of difficulty, I think South Korea probably in, in from a local point of view is the, the most idiosyncratic market. Maybe Japan is number two and I would say France number three. And the the interesting thing about those three markets is that in all three cases, the dominant forces are local or locally born and developed agencies. You know, LG and Chael in Korea, Dentsu and Hakuhodo in Japan, 
and of course Publicis and Havas in France. And so I think that gives them a local color and flavor, which uh, is quite difficult for foreigners or or people from abroad to to try and capture. Australia and New Zealand, I think because of distance and geography and character, uh, you know, are very idiosyncratic and or uh, both countries are idiosyncratic. And I think they need strong local leadership uh, and strong, you know, vibrant leadership to succeed. Are you doing that, for instance, at S4? We're trying. I mean, we're much more, much more focused operation. Um, WPP, when I left, had 113 markets. We have 31. I mean, we've been only going for about two and a half years. It's true. But I doubt, Paul, whether we will go much beyond probably about 35 markets. Uh, with with the growth of technology and the speeding up of technological process, you can hub markets much more effectively today than you ever could when I was at WPP or or, or such. Is you don't have to be on the ground in every market, and as I say, you can hub them. But you know what's happened as a result of populism, as a result of the pandemic and and the the localization of supply chains or the fragmentation of them, as a, as a, a result of what's happened with cybersecurity, because. You know, I remember when we were hacked at WPP, you know, the conventional wisdom before that hack was that we should integrate our networks, network systems. The conventional wisdom after it was that we should segment them. But with all that, that means that localization or fragmentation or regionalization is becoming more and more important. And I think in the case of S4, because we are a single brand and a single company and a unitary structure, we will tend to be more regional and local in our execution. You know, we're not going to have multi-brands. Uh, we obviously built our content practice around media monks, it's about 70% of our business, and our data and digital media practice around Mighty High, which is about the other 30, 30%. But what we're in the process of doing is developing the unitary brand. We're, we're soft launching it. If you look carefully at what we, we put out um, industrially, you'll see that we're starting to introduce our brand name. We're doing it gently because the the market is is littered with examples where people have tried to rush uh, a unitary branding or coordinated approaches. The, the classic recent one being AKQA and Gray, where you had clients and people, uh, you know, in an uprising really against uh, uh, an announcement that had been made from the centre. So we want to avoid you know, the, the, the perils of uh, Pauline of that. So uh, we're, we're, la we're launching it uh, softly, as I put it. But that unitary brand means that we can focus on more regional executions and more local executions, to your point. And I think that means that we will be more locally orientated. I mean, we're going to, to try and get that balance right between global, regional and local, which is not easy, but with a much more limited geographical structure and with that unitary brand, I think that gives us the opportunity to, to organise ourselves in a much more simple way. Just to be clear, when you talk about the unitary brand or the single brand, what is that brand? It's you'll see it, well, if you look very carefully, <laughs> we put out... Oh, uh, not no, behind no, you. No, 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 <laughs> no, it's not S4, but we're, we're, we're softly... Uh, rolling it out and you'll see that we're using it. It's really a, an amalgam of uh, Mighty Hive uh, and, and Media Monks with the emphasis on the monks. Monkey hives. <laughs> no. Mighty monks is what I love. Mighty monks, yes. Yeah. Well done. So we'll keep an eye on that one. I just do want to go pull you back, though, on that, that sort of uh, agency brand uh, unitary structure because is it true, is it fair to see, say that 
the, the, the holding companies and the agencies are starting to borrow from the consulting firms on a matrix uh, sort of structure, or is it different to that? Well, I don't know what the holding companies are doing. You know, they, they mouth off in one direction and they, they implement in another. So it's very difficult to figure out what the devil is happening. I mean, we go back going back to WPP and Australia and New Zealand is just another classic example. Are they unifying it or are they creating stronger verticals, which inevitably mean to internecine um, fights? I mean, i just give you one classic example. I have a friend who has a, has a young man or young woman in, uh, in WPP. Uh, and uh, he or she has received three offers. Uh, he or she is in a digital agency, has received three offers, would you believe it, from three different WPP digital units, at 25% more compensation than he or she is being paid at the moment. Just a, a little small example. Which you used how, to, I recall, 15 years ago. You'd block that with your creative people. I remember them well, we were, that we was would a try. no poaching. We would we would try, Paul, but, but it was very, very difficult. I mean, the trouble is, and, and at S4, what we've done is we've created one P&L. We have no cross-charging. When we merge, and, and we use the word merger intentionally because what when we get together with people, whether it's Media Monks, whether it's Mighty Hive, whether it's Jam 3, Raccoon, whatever, with two latest examples, I mean, we, we basically say to the the owner managers uh, of these companies, because that's another very important point, uh, that there is no split at S4 between ownership and, and management. I think this is the curse of many, many companies that you get a split between ownership and control, and that creates divisions. And if you look at the holding companies, the primary affiliation is not to the company as a whole, but to the individual brand. And that creates, you know, if you produce budgets each year and plans each year, which are on the, the basis of the progress of the individual brand, it is in conflict with the overall company. So, for example, when we brought Jam3 uh, and Raccoon, um, the two most recent content. One, one Canada, one South America, Brazil, is that right? Canada, US, uh, Uruguay, and one in Brazil and Latin America. When we brought them in, when we signed the LOI, uh, and the LOI process, you know, the negotiation of the contract, the due diligence usually takes about six to eight weeks. Uh, we start to integrate from that second and uh, we pitch together, we start to work together. And it gives both parties during that process, that legal and, and accounting process, the chance to look very carefully at the way they operate. And we're looking for people who want to buy into our approach. We're not looking for people who want to sell out. If you want to sell out, go and talk to Accenture or go and talk to the holding companies uh, with an earnout. Earnouts, by the way, I think are passe. They're past their sell-by date. Um, they, 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 they've gone, I think, in terms of uh, meaningful execution. The reason is they create fragmentation. They create a focus on the, the acquired unit. And what we're looking for is for people who want to buy into what we're trying to do. And what we're trying to do is create that new advertising and marketing service model, services model that is needed by CMOs, by CIOs, by CTOs, by CEOs, by CFOs, by chief procurement officers, chief sales officers, that new model, which is a fully integrated, seamless model. And I know that's a much misused word, seamless. It's not turning up for a pitch with the same T-shirt. It is actually implementing in a meaningful way, an operational way, a unitary structure. So when we get together with the Jam 3 or Raccoon or the other 20 or so companies that 
we brought into S4 over the last two to three years, we really mean what we say. And, and we're not, you know, ironically, we're not often the top bidder in these merger discussions. I mean, for example, with Media Monks, it's come to light recently that the WPP bid one and a, a maximum of one and a half billion euros for Media Monks. Uh, we paid 300 million euros for it, although with our share price appreciation, that figure uh, is, is, is a bigger figure now. But they bid 1.5 billion maxima um, for, for Media Monks, and, and Media Monks decided to go with us. So it tells you a little bit about mm. this missionary approach, as I call it, which is to build the new advertising and marketing services model and to and to disrupt the old. I mean, to take grand examples or make grand uh, comparisons. You know, we are the sort of Tesla or Amazon of the advertising and marketing services industry. And we're determined to build a new model, which is more effective, faster, better, cheaper is what we we, we talk about, uh, which is more effective uh, in terms of delivering solutions and value to our clients. I have to say, I, I've been busting to argue, ask you this for two years, watching the popcorn as you as you throw your missives at your old ship. With all the a lot of the valid uh, observations you make about your old crew, why didn't you change it when you were there? Could you? Wouldn't you? Didn't you? Mayor Cooper didn't go fast enough. The honest answer is it is an extremely difficult thing to do, Paul. You could make the same charge about the auto industry. Why is it taking so long for the auto companies to respond? The answer is that every analog industry, and this, you know, the advantage that we had at S4 two or three years ago is that we started with a clean sheet of paper. The disadvantage was we had a clean sheet of paper because we didn't have the scale. But but you're absolutely right. I mean, you're right to, to lay down that point because if I look back, you, you know, in the, in the public sphere, I think there is no way that any of the holding companies, any of the six, well, it's really five now because Havas has disappeared into Vivendi. It's really a, a, a rounding error in the context of Vivendi. But the, the, there's no way the top five can achieve unification because that's what they have to do in the public arena with people like you and M3, MI3 around to, to throw brick bats or examine the entrails, it's impossible to do it in the public arena. And what's really interesting is before Christmas, you remember there were those rumours, they were, they were not rumours as far as I'm, I can understand, that a private equity house was looking at publicists, mm, publicists denied yeah. by Artur Sadoun, uh, but I think conveniently so. I think there were discussions uh, about that. Uh, and I think that was really interesting because if the company that people mentioned was CVC, if CVC had managed to execute that transaction, which is to take private uh, publicists, I, I think they probably could have done a good job in really carving out what is effectively a bad bank. If you go back to, to the great financial crisis of 2008, the banks were in a similar position or the ad holding companies are in a similar position. They have a good bank which is the digital and data parts of their business. We can argue about whether third-party data is worth, worth a, a light or not. But the, 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 the data and digital media and parts of the business or the digital parts of the business are, are strong and will benefit from the growth. But the problem is the, the analog part of the business, the 60 to 70% of the business that is still analog. So if you can, in a private environment, without MI3 and others 
you know, casting the, the spotlight on you, carve out uh, or split off the, the bad parts uh, from, the, from the good parts. I think you may well be able to do something. But in the public arena, you know, look, 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 what, look at what McTeer and uh, Monsi tried to do in Australia and New Zealand. It was impossible. I mean, you, you, you try and change things uh, and you have the microscope on you uh, you know, if there are disaffected people, they, according to the trade press in Australia, uh, a number of people at uh, at WPP went straight to London to complain about Monsi's um, uh, efforts in, in one direction or another. I mean, it's very difficult in the public arena to do it. So I think what needs to be done is you privatise these these operations, and then you split them up and carve them up into pieces, and you'll deliver more value. I mean, I want to get to that, but could you have done it? Retrospect now, three years on, could you have could you have re-engineered WPP, or would it have to have broken it up like you're talking now? Could you have done it? Look, the the, the board of WPP. I still have my two percent of WPP. The board of WPP has a very small shareholding in WPP, virtually nothing, and I think part of the problem is. It's, there's a split between ownership and control, and the control part of the of the company, the chairman, the board. Really, it's a job for them. You know, mm. the chairman gets paid five hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year for doing what, and the the management. You know, they have their positions. Whether they're really wholly committed to trying to change things, you know, you know, one of the things you see, Paul, which is really interesting. You know, we we've gone we've gone through a Q one season where I think something like 60 to 80% of the companies that report whether the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 have exceeded their forecasts. And one of the reasons why that happens is that CEOs really are concerned about over-promising. So they under-promise uh, and, and therefore they over-deliver. And I think there is a natural reticence where you have that split between ownership and control because you don't control the company. If you make short-term decisions which are risky uh, and which may result in in negative uh, results, you're very, very much risk-averse. You know, here at S4, I have a control share. It's a somewhat controversial structure, very different to the normal structure, very similar to the tech structures where the, the founders or the owners, you know, control the company. And there's a big debate here in the UK. Lord Hill has put forward some recommendations to allow dual cast structures in the UK stock market so that we will encourage more tech-oriented companies because the FTSE 100 is still very oriented, orientated towards uh, traditional industries, financial, industrial, and not tech enough. And they think uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, introduced Lord Hill's recommendations during one of his budgets or his latest budget just recently. So it's very interesting the government... Uh, the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, really want to encourage tech companies, and they have these dual-class structures. And I think the, the strength of the dual-class structure is it brings together ownership and control. I mean, Rupert Murdoch is a classic example of this. I know some would criticise him. I think he's done an incredible job for himself and the other share owners. He's controlled the company. He's had a disproportionate control in relation to the equity value that the Murdoch family owned of, uh, of News Corp and Fox and et al., but has delivered extraordinary value and made 
brilliant strategic decisions. Look at look look what he did with the merger of Fox and Disney. Mm. Quite extraordinary. Right. I want to get to that structured conversation in regards to the sector that you know we all operate. We both operated in. So the global holding company mergers or breakups. One of your old lieutenants, Hamish McLennan, was on this podcast last year predicting that either. There would be uh, one of the communications holder companies would either go to a private equity group, they would merge with a consultant, uh, or there'd be further mergers between the big four. Do you see consolidation inevitable, and in what sort of time frame and breakups? Uh, well, you might get IPG getting together with Dentsu or Dentsu finally surrendering on their international business and and jettisoning it. Whether uh, a, a Japanese-based company can really build an international company is and you see a little bit with the. The South Korean uh, companies, Chael, LG, they have difficulty in expanding abroad. Um, but it, maybe you'll get that. But I think anything beyond that would be ill-advised. It would just create more confusion, more division. I think the big issue is focus. And what should happen is they should be taken off market. There's no reason for them to be on the market anymore. You know, they've gone through their consolidation phases. What they need is focus and integration. They need to become one company. And the only way they can do that is, the, is if they go off market. Uh, and, you know, just to, to Hamish's point, if you could, uh, he was right in the sense that if he said that a year or so ago, because before Christmas, uh, it was a strong rumour. It, it, it was more than a strong rumour. It was a fact that one of the houses one of the private equity houses was looking closely at publicists with the idea of, of privatizing. I think the share price at that time was about 25 euros. It is now over 50. I think it moved during the course of that discussion or negotiation. And that's the reason it didn't happen. The interesting thing to be extremely mischievous is, no, not you. is, is that it is, it is probable that if those conversations took place, that the Bedinter family, who have a Murdoch-like position, it's not quite as strong. I think they own about seven or eight percent of the stock. With in France, you get fifty percent more voting. I think if you hold the stock for two years, so they would have had about eleven or twelve percent of the votes. Plus Maurice Levy, as I understand it, that the two together were in favour of privatising the company, right. um, and that's the reason why the discussions took place. So. It, you know, what you need is key shareholders to support privatisation. Uh, you need... Well, in the case of you've got a 2% stake, you've said publicly that the reason you're holding on to your 2% in WPPs is you think it's worth more broken up. Absolutely. It's worth probably, if it's trading now at 975, and I think 12, most, of the billion, analysts, right? most of the analysts think it's worth about 11 quid or 11 and a half. Um, it probably is worth 12, 13, 14 if you break it up. And is, if it happened, is S4 interested in any of the units? Not really. I mean, I think, you know, if there were digital units, I mean, they've been polluted really by the digital units. You know, you put VML together with YNR, you put AKQA together with Gray or half put it together. I don't know whether it's... Group M, you're not interested in Group M? Well, no, group, M, group M, I like parts of Group M. I, I do like... E e Essence is a wonderful business. Um, you know, the, the management of Essence is, uh, is, is excellent uh, and they've done an extra good job. But we're interested in pure digital, Paul. I mean, the problem that we have in considering any of the, the things that you're suggesting is that we, we, we're not polluted. We're 100% digital. I mean, that may be a disadvantage, by the way, because there are some clients that want 
an integrated approach and we're not able to deliver it. Mm. But, you know, our view is that the digital tail will wag the dog. I mean, digital is already 50% of the market. It's forecast by analysts to be 70% of the market by 2026. So we think we're on we're on a winning wicket. I, so I'm, a hesitant, str- I'm hesitant to use a cricketing analogy whilst I'm talking to an Australian. But No, well, actually, you're talking to a New wicket. Zealander who backs the All Blacks, just for clarity. <laughs> That's even worse. Yeah, sorry. I had to get that in somewhere and I just did. <laughs> So the other scenario, though, is that if you if you think about where your business and where the business is going, it seems that tech platforms, tech stacks, and vendor alliances the new are the new power players and revenue growth sources for agency and holding groups, right? And that and that was what media companies used to be for some of these holding companies. It's sort of cycling out of media more so now into into tech vendors alliances. Um, you've got them, right? You're with Google, Adobe, Salesforce, and the rest globally. Um, now, the, the the big setup here is that a decade ago, I remember the debate was all about media neutrality. You had to be, you know, you weren't going to be in TV, you weren't going to be in so forth. Now, the issue is how do you be technology neutral? How do you get the neutrality in a, in, as a company like yours where you're advising a bunch of companies without huge resource to be able to be across all those platforms? So can you really be tech neutral? Well, uh, we, we do believe we are tech agnostic and we look at, I mean, it's worth running through the companies that we look at. You know, that mantra of faster, better, cheaper. Faster is about agility and cheaper is about efficiency, particularly in a zero inflation or close to zero inflation world, although that looks as though it might change. We we can get into that if you want. Better, more elegantly, we say speed, quality, value. Better or quality is about understanding all the companies that you just touched on uh, agnostically. It's about understanding the hardware companies, the software companies, uh, and the platforms. So who are they? They're the big six, Google, Facebook, Amazon in the West, Tencent, Alibaba, and TikTok, or ByteDance in the East. Uh, And then in addition to that, worth running through them, it's uh, Apple and Microsoft. It's Adobe, Salesforce, and Oracle. It's IBM and S&P. It's uh, uh, SAP. It's Twitter, Snap, Pinterest, Spotify, Netflix, LG, Samsung. It's Epic. It's uh, Shopify. It's Xiaomi. It's JD.com. It's Kaoshu, which is the, the challenger to, to TikTok now. We're seeing uh, in China uh, and beyond. So we ebb and flow with our clients in terms of the relative strengths and merits. But look at the marketplace. So if the media marketplace is about 550, 600 billion this year, dollars, uh, it looks like Google is going to go from about 180 billion of revenues to 240 billion. It looks like Facebook is going to go from 80 to 110. I'm just extrapolating Q1 this year. It looks like Amazon is going to go from 20 to 30 or 35. So you're talking about an incremental $100 billion of of digital advertising revenue is going to flow just to those three platforms. And what people don't understand, and I know it's very controversial in an Australian context, but I think what we all have to understand, and I know that that Facebook uh, have used this argument, I think rightly, so rightly so, in in their uh, their responses to regulatory pressure, etc. These platforms are the engine of growth for small and medium sized companies. I mean, Jack Ma says that in relation to, or has said that historically, in relation to Alibaba, and he's dead right. I mean, where would where would small and medium sized businesses have been in the pandemic? If they hadn't, were not able to to execute their marketing programs, both uh, strategic and tactical, 
uh, you know, on these platforms. So it's really, it's understanding all those companies and as they ebb and flow, you know, Snap becomes, Snap grew 63% last year, smaller base, only about two and a half billion of revenue, says in its capital markets day, it's going to grow by 50% a year for the next five years and quite probably will will grow very rapidly, but we'll see how, how relatively important. But as that grows and, and somebody else uh, diminishes, uh, you know, we move... Uh, approaches, investment, money between all of those platforms. Depending not, not, on not easy though. With it, not easy with the talent um, starv- starvation or the talent dearth we've got now. Now, give me, give, I'll give you an example. No, 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 so, no, no. I, I, I've, got, I've got to have a go against that. Paul, look, I don't know how many people were fired at WPP Australia New Zealand, for example, uh, last year. You would know the number. I don't know how many people lost their jobs in the industry. Now, all I can tell you is we were two and a half thousand people last year. Today, we're 5,500. We've added 3,000 jobs. About half of them have come from merger and half of them come by onboarding. We've grown. And, you know, if somebody, you know, coming back to the, the purpose debate, if somebody said to me, what's the purpose of S4? It's to provide jobs. Very simple. We want to build a company where larger and larger numbers of people depend on us for their livelihoods and their dependence. I'm very proud of the fact that from zero three years ago, we now have 5,500, call it 5,000 people, probably with average of three dependents uh, per person. So 15,000 people who depend for their livelihood on us. I'm very proud of that. And I think that's a, a strong enough purpose uh, for us. And that's what we're in business for. We don't well, have, we, look, we, we have a, uh, we, we are growing very rapidly. Q2 is extremely strong. I haven't in my 45 years seen such strong organic growth in a company uh, ever. And this is as a result of the pandemic bounce back in part, but it's also a result of digital transformation or digital marketing transformation. But you know, we are providing jobs and we can find the people. It's not easy, you're right. But we can find the people. We don't go to the holding companies. We go to tech platforms, we go to universities. I mean, for example, Raccoon, I just sent out an email over the weekend, as I do every week, uh, highlighting the Raccoon University. They're based in San Carlos, about three hours from San Paolo, and they they employ about 500 university uh, undergraduates on a two-year internship program, encouraged by the government, uh, in in digital marketing and digital transformation. So, you know, whilst I know people say there are shortages of, of people in various parts of the economy, and that's why we're starting to see a bit of inflation, if you look hard enough, you will find. I do want to come back to the very quickly to the, the tech agnostic argument because if, if we if we think about the big consulting firms, right? So in in a, in a digital or business transformation process, you've got these big consulting firms saying this is how you're going to restructure. Now I know one I know one here that's got five six hundred Salesforce specialists. So the answer is Salesforce. What's the question? Is the is the issue that that we're facing here? So and as you say, you ebb and flow between the platforms. You say we don't have a problem getting the people, but if you've got a big in, in built infrastructure like what that consulting firm does, you're going to want to recommend Salesforce, even if it's not the best sort of outcome for a project. Well, our objective, Paul, is to provide advice on all that, all those platforms. You know, is tech, which has become part mm. of uh, Media Monks in It was an Adobe Australia. shop though, wasn't it? It was, an Adobe, it was and is, uh, and is growing extremely rapidly. We will be doing something shortly. We're in another software area uh, in, in, in Asia Pacific, 
which will will build out our expertise in a, another one of those software platforms. So all I'm saying to you is that we're very keen on building expertise and knowledge in an agnostic way across all the hardware companies, all the software companies, and all the platforms. Now, it's not easy, but, you know, take, for example, when one of our people won an award uh, you know, as sort of technology, I think it was from Campaign uh, in Asia Pacific, being te technology star of the year because of what we've been doing with the epic Unreal Engine Fortnite technology uh, platform uh, in uh, New Delhi. We've taken over the CNBC TV18 studio. We put a couple of million dollars into building out the studio. Uh, and obviously, it's not easy in India at the moment. Um, Puran Milani and uh, Robbie Gadinho uh, are building the this 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 studio where we can produce uh, high quality content from anywhere in the world in that studio for use uh, in digital advertising. So, you know, we embrace technological development. Uh, as effectively as we possibly can. Look, we can't do, you're right, we can't do everything everywhere, but we're going to have a darn good try at trying to do as much of it as we can uh, in, in as many places as we can. And as we get, hopefully, bigger and more successful, we'll be able to do more of it. But, you know, our, our approach is to try and understand and learn. I remember on the Epic Fund, it was really interesting. You know, we have a daily meeting, management meeting of the top eight people, you know, at S4, and we we sit and, and talk about, we talk about our people, obviously, because of the pandemic. We talk about our clients. We talk about our finances. Um, and I remember about this time last year, it would have been in about April, May of last year, uh, Wes Tahar was particularly enthusiastic, one of the principals at MediaMarks, was particularly enthusiastic about the Epic Games, uh, Fortnite, Unreal Engine technology. Uh, and in fact, the New York Times covered an article where one of our people in New York, at MediaMux in New York, was meeting a client through an avatar. He had an avatar, and the client had an avatar in a Fortnite game, uh, using the technology in a, in a unique way, in a different way, uh, in order to, to establish uh, contact with one another and, and develop conversations with one another. So, you know, we managed to latch on to ideas and technology uh, because of the nature of our people and the nature of their curiosity, I think as fast or faster than, than others. Can I get back to, I want to pull you back on the regulatory and privacy stuff, the yeah. headwinds there, because you've been, I think I've heard you in a forum in London, um, you wouldn't know I was listening, but I was, um, and <laughs> I think you downplayed the, 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 the regulatory threat. It was probably a good year ago, um, and I think it was yeah. with one of the former editor at the Times or was a sort of yeah. four of you having a crack at that. And yeah. you, I, I think I remember there, you played down, you were, no, it's not a big issue. Now, obviously, is, is it changing? Is the regulatory headwinds, is, is, it, is it going to... Uh, have any impact? Because we're certainly seeing it here. We've seen it. Um, Google respond to potential regulatory threats by and dropping third-party cookies. And and well, Google, but yes, that's true. Well, Facebook's more recalcitrant, and though, isn't it, really? And Apple. And Apple. Yeah. Well, privacy, I mean, Apple's wedging the other two, isn't it, on privacy? Well, um, it's, it's certainly wedging Facebook on privacy. I, I'm not so sure it's wedging Google as much. No, look, the, 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 the ACCC and what was going on in Australia... Uh, was a bellwether and a, a wake-up call. Now, Google made its first move on third-party cookies, not this year. I mean, I remember 
I was in the Middle East in January of last year mm, that's right. when the first blog came out. I think it was January right. of 2020. Well, the first blog came up about um, the nixing of third-party cookies. And, of course, we had the second blog uh, a few weeks ago, a couple of months mm. ago, uh, and and the proverbial hit the fan. But, but it was a little bit odd because the proverbial should have hit the fan um, yeah. a year or so ago. Yeah. Now, I, I think Google were very smart. I think they they saw... Uh, part and it was before what 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 was happening in in Australia, but they saw the writing on the wall. They they saw that they that consumers were becoming very concerned about privacy. They were very concerned about interference in elections. They were very concerned about about brand safety. They were very concerned about misuse of their data, partly because consumers didn't understand, uh, for good reason, you know what. You know, even I, who are meant to understand mm. a little bit about this, was somewhat surprised when, you know, I remember I was looking at a company uh, which had Amex data, and uh, I was somewhat surprised they managed to capture that that data. So uh, without without my knowledge and for those purposes. So when you sign up, you know, I'd ask you this, Paul, when was the last time that you, you said no to, you know, accept or reject when you were signing up? Uh, on an app or whatever, and the answer is that for convenience terms, we we don't send the agreement, which is five pages of close type, mm. to our lawyers to look at before we sign up for obvious reasons. So we, as an industry, and the platforms and the software companies, hardware companies, have to make it easier for consumers to understand what they're getting themselves in for. Right, and when you do, and and how, if they want to, they want to get money you know, be paid for using their data. After all, the data is mine; it's yours. Mm. Yeah, right. So we we should be at the bit now. I think Google saw that coming, and I think what they did is very smart because, uh, and I think the same thing for Apple, they, they acknowledged the importance of it. And what is going to happen as a result, and this may not be to the regulator's purpose, but it will drive clients in one direction, but to two things. Firstly is to first-party data. The customer-consented data that clients have will become the com- the critically important sort of set of data and pooling that and pulling it together. That's why our data practice is doing so well. It's because clients are saying, I have to pull my first party data and they're going to use the signals, again, the consented signals that the platforms have. So all this will cause short-term turbulence, which is good from our point of view because it creates uncertainty and the marketing VIX or volatility factor, if there was such an index, goes through the roof and clients are looking for guidance and advice. I mean, we inbound over the weekend from a major company. We had a request, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, you know, for more help uh, in, in the area of data. So first party data and the signals become more and more important. And the irony about this is it will make those platforms, the platforms. <laughs> yeah. So I think what will happen just on the regulation thing to finish, to finish off, I think where our position is, it's going to make it much more difficult for them to acquire further units. They will be able to grow organically, but to make acquisitions, I think, is going to become quite Well, I just the only counter to that is be very interesting to see, and it's a recommendation, but if the ACCC, one of the, uh, the ACCC recommendations is about data interoperability. So you remember the mobile phone, you couldn't take it with you a 1,000 years ago. Um, well, now you can. So the same thing is if, if the regulators force 
interoperability between platforms and data, that starts to get quite interesting on the democratisation of power, maybe. There's a hope from a journo who's just waxing lyrical, but nevertheless. But I do want to ask, though, that isn't the concern, shouldn't the industry be concerned that if we're seeing the opt-in rates for the new iOS update sitting at 10 to 15%, so 85% of people are going, no, don't track me, isn't that a concern for your business, the industry, and that what you can do, what we thought we could do, and what we can do now is changing. No, but what's going to happen is it's going to drive back people back to what I just said, first-party data and the wall gardens. I mean, I, I wrote to five CMOs, CDOs uh, of major global companies after the second blog. It was my random sample of five. And every one of the five, these were big companies, global, right back and said, what this means is first-party data and the wall gardens become more important. It might be 20 or so wall gardens, but they become more important. And, you know, if you look at what Mark Pritchard has done at Proctor, which is doing extremely well at the moment, uh, you know, he has, what, 1.2, last time I saw 1.2, 1.3 billion consumer profiles, yeah. uh, PNG customer profiles, doing much more in-house on the content front much more in-house on the digital media front. I mean, in a 24-7, always-on world, Paul, marketeers, I, mean, I hate to use Dominic Cummings' winning phrase in the Brexit campaign, but <laughs> they have to take back control. They have to be agile, mm. they have to take back control, and they have to control their first-party data. They have to integrate, control is a wrong word for first-party, they have to integrate their first-party data in effective ways. Because the trouble is, Many of those, I mean, I remember speaking. Well, they outsourced to people like you, didn't they? Well, no, 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 no. Yes, exactly. They outsourced to us, and that was a mistake. Into you know, our model at S4, we have an outsourced model, we have an embedded model where we put our people into the client, we have an in-house model. I mean, what was it? Uh, The the WFA said what eighty percent, eighty three percent of their client base. I think in a survey Mm. recently, we're in house. Are using yeah, we're we're looking at in housing or had some form of in house. It's a slight overplay though, Sir Martin, because some of it was about little content down there, and it wasn't necessarily the whole of their capabilities. Uh, Jens Monsey may may end up becoming CMO of a a company in Australia. I'm sure CTO, some might say. So CTO maybe okay. That he, that's he ends up there. He's going to be he's going to be trying to integrate his data uh, and throughout the company. And the trouble, because I spoke to a financial institution recently in Australia, and you know we were talking about first party data and the importance of it. And they said, you know, integrating it because they'd grown by acquisition, because even if they hadn't grown by acquisition, they had different systems and different parts of the company. Getting it together was was a nightmare. Uh, you know, and the cost. Mm. Now, one of the great things about the pandemic is, you know, Q2 blew a hole in the P&Ls of most, most clients. So, they, you know, the, the, the change agents inside companies have been pushing for change and being told we can't do that because it's too expensive. You know, they had an open avenue because, or open route because people could take write-offs mm. in order to, 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 to restructure uh, and accelerate the digital transformation process. Now, so I'm worried. I've got four minutes left. And I've got about a thousand questions. So there's one more really critical thing I want to get from you, though, and that is you talked earlier about you know, the platforms with the growth engines for, for SMEs, for small and medium-sized enterprise, basically, you know, backing them. But you clearly don't share the same concerns as many others about the future of democracy as a result of those the platforms. That's not something that you're worried about at all. 
It's not that I'm not worried about it at all. I, you know, I think the pressures are so great on the companies. You know, you, you know once they went over the one trillion market cap, and you know, Lloyd Blankfein, I think it was, who used to run Goldman Sachs, said when asked who's going to be the first to two trillion, he said it won't happen because no nation state would let a company become two trillion. Well, they're over two trillion, and some people are saying they might get to three. The the and that puts them, you know, Germany was what three and a half trillion GDP or whatever it is. So you are talking about very large, sort of effectively nation states. I think with power comes responsibility, and I think they're starting to exercise that responsibility because if they know that if they don't do that, they will be regulated, they will be pushed, they may be broken up. Uh, they will be put under extreme pressure. Now, Facebook has taken on, at least to my knowledge, and that was a number from some time ago, it might be very much greater now, 30,000 people to monitor editorial content. And you know what, Sir Martin, the Privacy Commissioner still can't get Facebook to respond. Look, that's another conversation. Don't even get me started on that. You're right. Actually, I think it's up to seventy or 80,000 now is the number. So they've really, they've really put it down. They, are, they have shifted their position and they're shifting all the time. And, and I think you know, one of the problems... You know, I'd really love to know what proportion of their revenues come, come from small and medium-sized businesses. 60, Facebook isn't it? does. Well, we think it's 60, but you actually don't get a number of the proportion of revenue. What you get is a number on the number from Facebook on the number of businesses that use Facebook for right. commercial purposes. And we don't really, really know. Um, and, you know, everybody focuses on the big advertisers and so that's where they get they get most of their money. Well, it's not. I don't think that is the case. It's probably no, around the sixty percent right. that, that you say. But look, I do think it's certainly a better position than it was. Um, the most damaging testimony, I think, in Congress when the, the leaders of the businesses were hauled up was around acquisitions and what the companies might or might not do in the case mm. of acquisitions. And you know, Google, Google, I think, is buying back about uh, sixty billion of stock. And Apple, 90 billion. So between the top two, if you like, there's 150 billion of buybacks. And I think that's a signal. It might be a signal that they can work with less cash balances, that they've got more capital than than they need. But I think it's also because the opportunity to make deals, to do deals on Mm. scale. I mean, Amazon rumored to be looking at MGM. Mm. Yeah, I wonder whether that doesn't poke the regulatory bear, Mm. you know, if you do that. Do you really want, you know, what is it, nine billion, which in the context of of Amazon is chump change? Yeah. Um, do you do you really want to poke the bear for that? I don't know. That's a really interesting point about you know antitrust uh, versus in Australia our competition uh, uh, Sar here has consumer law and competition law, and it's a quite interesting. He's playing both. They're play, the the HPC here is playing both as opposed to antitrust. Another subject. Listen, one one last one is short term. So, what do you make of this whole debate around short term investment to drive immediate response and investing in brand for long term? S four, for instance, seems to be investing in a lot of lower funnel performance-based stuff. You're smiling. So here, watch out. I'm going to cop something on that one. No, you're not going to cop something. This gets into very tender territory because all the people in our industry that look back with rose-tinted spectacles at the era of Don Draper and and even more important luminaries like David Ogilvy, um, think about, you know, long-term brand building and the importance of long-term branding. It may be that life has become shorter term. It may be that attention spans have diminished. 
it may be that we have to be more reactive or more activation focused uh, than long-term focus. I'm not saying it is. I'm just saying, I'm just... Look, look, our industry put its foot in its mouth on the pandemic. I remember people here in the UK market saying to clients, the moment the pandemic hit, spend, spend, spend. That was outrageous. That really was it. It was, it was the most irresponsible statement I've heard. It was absolutely outrageous to say to clients who couldn't move, had no distribution, they should be spending like creases. Nonsense. It, it, you know, everybody looks at us. I mean, why is it that we're trusted less than anybody else? Yeah, although I know I hear that, but bankers haven't covered themselves in glory for a decade. We still, they still get away with lots of stuff, don't they? What we have to acknowledge is that with the rise of digital, there, there may be a shift in timeframes. So you're not denying that S4 is a, is a lower funnel, tactical, digital... No, there are two things that we think about, Paul, just to your question strategically. One is we, whether we need to do more what you would call upper funnel. Mm-hmm. and more strategic. Uh, I mean, a lot of our, we have a great- The listeners should see the smile on his face when he says that, by the way. No, 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 it's not a smile because I'm smiling because we have a strong base because a number of our people believe that a lot of our people are upper funnel. Okay. And, you know, do I want to get into the same position as WPVAUNZ with strategic people and creative people and account handling people all bumping into one another? all scrambling over one another to get to the clients, not just the, the, you know, the verticals that scramble that fight with one another. It's people within the verticals that fight mm. with one another. I don't want that. I don't want to import agency inflation or agency structures. I want a new structure. We want a new model and we want a new approach, which is less encumbered. So that's one thing. The second thing is, do we need to broaden that? We have two practices. One around content, 70% of the business. One around data and digital media, which is 30%. Do we need to broaden? Because coming to, you know, I, I've talked publicly about Globan, you know, another company that dear old B, WPP sold out too early. They've, they've lost a billion dollars in value by selling that 20% stake in Globan at 52 when it now trades at 220 or whatever it is. But... The point about Globant was it, it approaches digital transformation from the tech services end. So do we do we need tech services you know, as a third practice within within S4? So upper funnel, yes, you know, I would acknowledge the debate. I'm not sure what the conclusion is, but I would say we have to debate it. I'd argue you used to believe it though, right? Because that you had to with your creative agencies and all the things you did at WP. Did you always believe that? But life has changed. Mm, fair enough. Life mm. has changed. And, and I think you have to bring fresh thinking, fresh thinking. I mean, look, look, Clemenger, I, I don't know. You'd know far better than I, but I read some of the stuff on Clemenger and you know, a a, a quintessentially important and successful operation uh, in Australia you know, arguably the strongest agency in Australia, showing signs of creaking. You tell me, why is that? Mm. It may be that the model is not right and has not been adapted. I mean, a lot of the analysts look at the five hold, six holding companies, and some say, look, they may recover. I think Barclays, Union Roche at Barclays says they'll grow at 3% and they're undervalued. There are others that say, you know, they still face a strategic headwind 
uh, a structural headwind that they won't uh, overcome. We will not know the answer to that until 2023, because 21, 22 is going to be tainted by the the rebound. I mean, it, you know, people say three percent growth in Q1 of this year is good news. Well, that's a nonsense because they were all down. But right. by that and more, and then in Q2 when they all grow, but you know, Densu pointed to April mm. being up by 17. percent I'm Big. embarrassed to tell you what we grew at. In, in April, I mean, embarrassed in a good way. I mean, mm. it was huge. It was in hu- huge. Uh, never seen anything like it in the 45 years that I've been in the industry. So you don't need full funnel then, do you? You stay, just keep doing what you're doing. It's all good. Look, we want to we want to develop the best capabilities we possibly can. So to, to flatly say we don't need it would be a mistake as well. I think, I think the answer to your question is that we have to to think about it in an enlightened way, in a different way, and not end up with the same multifunctional structures where people are crawling over one another and it creates a degree of chaos. I mean, you do in, in the traditional agency, as you know, you know, you have the planner, you have the creative, and you have the account function, and, and let alone the media function, which has been separated. And trying to bring it together in a concerted an integrated way is not easy when you've got multi multi PLs. Mm. You know, if you've got a unitary PL, it's much easier. I mean, the irony about this conversation is we're sort of going backwards, if you like, to, you know, because a lot, a lot you know, I remember MediaCom announcing a few weeks ago that it was going into creative. You know, it was going to create, cre- you know, recreate the link between creative and media by going into Well, that's your toothpaste work. analogy you've used for a long time, right? <laughs> the tube, toothpaste in the tube. I promise you this is my very last question. We've talked a lot about media. You've said that for the last five questions. I know. This is promise that this is it. Um, put it on the All Blacks. We've talked a lot about media and tech and channel mix here, but less about creative and creativity. Uh, even McDonald's here locally has done that. You know, analytics partners worked out that 50% of the efficacy of what they do is actually creative. So how has your worldview changed on creative, Samartan, and what's the future? of mainstream creative agencies. You're smiling again. We're, we're 70% creative as, I, as we define it. Right. right. I mean, the, the irony about this, you know, this is this snotty attitude that the industry has to, or you're, you're trotting it out in, by implication, the snotty attitude this has to production agencies. I mean, Media Monks was a production agency. You go back, I don't know, 10 years, 85% of its revenues came from other agencies. I remember when... Um, when we first got involved with Media Monks, I took uh, Victor Nat, the one, the other principal uh, with Victor, with uh, Wes, Wes uh, of Media Monks, to see the CMO of a major global package goods company, and we showed him the 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 reel of Media Monks' work, and he said, "I didn't know that you did all that." Now, right. these were the production agencies that were doing other people's work, and they were executing them. And, you know, over time, Victor and Wes said, look, we should go direct. And now it's the reverse. You know, 85 to 90% of the revenues come directly. This is exactly the same as what happened to media inside agencies. You know, the, the media people, you know, Chris Ingram, the Grow Brothers, uh, Michael Casson, yeah. and Dennis, what, what was it, Dennis Holt, you know, Western International were the first ones. You know, they, 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 they declared UDI. And that's effectively what's happening on the creative front. And I, and I know that the people within the so-called production agencies, it's not just media monks, resent the suggestion that they aren't creative 
And I was looking at back of some when we started S4, we issued our perspectives. Some of the very well-known names without identifying, I was looking at an article actually a couple of days ago uh, of the well-established and well-entrenched agencies were, were turning their noses up at the work being done by, quotes unquote, the production houses. Right. Exactly the same attitude. As you remember, below the line. Mm-hmm. Right? Direct marketing. Below the Analog. Yeah, yeah, direct, yeah, 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 yeah. When I started WPP. The worm has turned. Well, to be fair, the d- direct marketers and below the line have turned into digital and own the world, right? That's pretty much what's happened. So I would say that I wasn't really th- having a crack at production. It was more about the fact that I'm guilty, we've been guilty in this conversation of talking tech, media, everything else but creative. And, in fact, uh, so much so much of it is important that we sort of over... We, we tend to not talk about it as much. No, 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 but I think we're acknowledging... Well, but by talking about it that way, we're acknowledging that data. Again, this is another one, another thing that the, those with the rose-tinted spectacles look back. And uh, you know, I've heard a lot about from the industry luminaries, or so-called, about how data taints uh, good creative or great creative. I think that's nonsense. Data and insights informs great creative, and I think that's that's the difficulty that we all have. I mean, it goes back to. I remember being at WPP and we, we acquired Millwood Brown and people at JWT and Ogilvy and uh, resenting the idea that a, a Millwood Brown eight, eight score copy store score uh, and enabled them to take their, their copy or ads to another, you know, to, to, to pump them out. Um, and in fact, one planner at JWT called me and said, why don't we start an agency that is focused on getting an eight score from um, Bill Brown? <laughs> be a winner. Um, no, <laughs> but, but I, I think the simple fact of the matter is that data helps us, gets us greater insights and produces more brilliant creative work. Um, and so I think, I think it's a, a, a bonus and an, addition, an, an additional piece of value to what we do. So I, I think the two are not in conflict. You know, going back you know, with the again with those rose-tinted spectacles, looking at you know the the era of Don Draper and uh, and and others, uh, and that's the be-all and end-all. It's not. No, and I, I have to stop. So thank you. Um, look, I, there's automated creative, there's dynamic, there's all that. There's the machines. We can get to that. Not today. So Martin Sorrell, thanks for joining us on the hundred. Thank you, Paul. And on to yours, two hundred. That's my. It's my first century. Stay safe over there and thanks for joining us, Martin. Thank you very much. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.